This content is for institutional investors and information purposes only. It does not contain investment, financial, legal tax or any other advice and should not be relied upon for this purpose. The materials are not tailored to your particular, personal and or financial position. If you require advice based on your specific circumstances, you should contact a professional advisor. Opinions expressed are those of the speakers as of the date of publication, are subject to change without notice and do not necessarily reflect Mercer's opinions. Hello, and welcome to Critical Thinking, Critical Issues. I'm Samantha Davidson, the U.S. OCO segment leader, and I'll be your host for today's episode, where we will be discussing the key findings from our mid-year 2022 outlook on the economy and markets. At the start of 2022, based on significantly improved GDP growth, both in the U.S. and abroad, our outlook for the year was broadly positive. Now, halfway through the year, we expect economies to slow but remain resilient, though with an element of added caution. Sharp rises in inflation have prompted a bout of monetary tightening by central banks aimed at slowing economic growth. While we believe the strong consumer balance sheets we noted at the start of the year should still provide a valuable buffer to support consumption, the risks of a sharper than expected slowdown have risen slightly, particularly in those regions and markets most exposed to energy price rises. On balance, we still expect a soft landing from the global economy, but with significant downside risk. To explore the outlook further, I'm joined by Rupert Watson, Head of Asset Allocation in Europe, and Anthony Brown, Director of Capital Markets in the U.S. So Rupert and Anthony, welcome. Hi, Anthony. Hi, Samantha. Thank you. So to kick off, I think we're going to just focus on the macro a bit. So, you know, recently, as of June 30th, we've seen in the U.S., the euro area, and the U.K. come surprisingly near to 10% inflation, the highest inflation that any of us have seen in 40 years, and well above inflation targets of 2%. Some of this has been spurred by adaption for the pandemic, disruptions to supply chain from continued lockdowns in China, and geopolitical tensions in Russia, Ukraine. All of this has certainly been tremendous change. So Rupert, we'll start with you. Can you provide more color on the underlying key drivers that got us to this level of inflation? Well, thank you, Samantha. The three things that uh, you touched on there, I think, are the most relevant. The first is that we've seen a surge in commodity prices, uh, both before the Russian invasion of Ukraine uh, and indeed since. The second, we've seen the reopenings of economies fully following COVID, with, with of course, the notable exception of China, which seen, seen the price of lots of things uh, jump higher as demand has surged, but also as there have been restrictions on things like chip production, which has led to sharp increases in the price of things like new cars uh, and used cars. And then finally, uh, we've also seen a sharp fall in unemployment rates as global demand has been strong. And that has led to very low unemployment rates, which has pushed wage growth up, wage, wage growth up um, quite sharply. Now, all of those three things independently would have been reasonably significant, but collectively they've pushed you, pushed us to multi-high, multi-year levels on inflation. And here in the UK, I think we're going to hit about 12% um, by about October. Now, you ask, were they foreseeable? 
Well, I would say that the commodity price, not really. I mean, it was foreseeable that the strength in demand we saw should lead to um, um, biggish increases or decent increases, upward pressure, shall we say, on commodity prices. But particularly what we've seen in Europe and natural gas wasn't remotely forecastable. uh, And the Russian invasion itself um, was largely unforecasted. So I don't think that was forecastable. The reopening stuff, yes, to some extent, that what did seem, you know, there was some inevitability about that, um, although perhaps that has been more severe than many reasonable people would have would have suspected. The one thing I think where policymakers should have foreseen a little bit better uh, is what is what's been going on in labour markets. It has been clear for has been clear for many quarters that labour markets were exceptionally tight, and it was inevitable that this would lead to upward pressure on wages. And I think this is one area where one can be critical of central banks globally. They did not act more quickly um, to um, uh, to slow demand and therefore to slow labour markets. Uh, and reduce wage pressures. I don't know if Anthony, you've got anything to add to that. Um, No, no, I think we can move on to the next question. Well, so uh, on that point, right, on whether they should have foreseen it and should central banks then been been acting or reacting, right, they certainly are responding now to incurb inflation. And so, Anthony, for your perspective, how persistent do you think inflation will be what is the most appropriate measure of inflation that we can all follow? And how long should we all expect to be living with the inflation at these levels? Well, thank you, Samantha. Um, I mean, first of all, I think it's always interesting to look to see what the market is pricing. I mean, we can look at market pricing to, to see what the market expects inflation will be in the future. And what we've seen recently is a pretty big decline in inflation expectation. Uh, the market's now pricing that inflation will be back below 3% by the end of 2023. And in looking out a few years, that inflation will be back down in the neighborhood of the Fed's target. Now, I mean, I think at first glance, that might be seem very optimistic, given that yeah, the recent print in the U.S. has been close to 9%. Um, but as we look at it, I, I mean, we think it's probably a reasonable base case. I mean, going back to Rupert's comment, uh, energy has been a big driver of this. And if energy just kind of flattens out here, that'll take away a good chunk of that inflation surprise. And then again, going back to Rupert's comment, uh, high demand has been a big contributor to this inflation surprise. And what we're now seeing, I mean, especially in the U.S., is fiscal policy is contracting and, and fiscal was a big contributor to that high demand. And as the economy slows, we should see demand soften up. And that'll give a chance for supply chains to catch up. Um, but I guess one point, though, I would emphasize is that the risk to this outlook, we think, are to the upside. I mean, of course, it's really hard to say what will happen with oil prices. I mean, the market is saying oil prices will fall over the next year, but I mean, we just don't know. Uh, the the supply demand balance is still very tight and who knows what eventually happens with the Russia-Ukraine conflict. I mean, it, it, we we could see oil prices continue to rise. One thing I'll add just on, sorry, sorry, just to add just on the, on the natural gas side, which we're pretty focused on here in the UK um, and in the rest of Europe, because European natural gas prices are about, you know, almost 10 times, 10 times, not 10%, 10 times higher than they are in the US and at levels never seen before. 
Uh, and as a result of that, household energy bills, both for electricity, which are partially priced off gas prices, and gas itself, have completely gone through the roof. Now, as Anthony was saying, you know, none of us have the faintest idea exactly what's going to happen to those to those Russian supplies uh, and indeed um, uh, Europe's measures uh, to try to wean itself off Russian gas. Um, and so it's pretty likely these prices will stay very high, shall we say, for the next 12 months. But it's certainly possible thereafter that they will fall very sharply back. And so energy prices in Europe in aggregate are adding, you know, four, five, six percent to under underlying inflation indices. And a lot of that could move the other way. Fingers crossed. I'm certainly hoping uh, in 2024 uh, and beyond. Yeah, I mean, I think that's right. I mean, I think that's a that's a, a big potential deflation or disinflationary force. I guess as I look out, I guess the other the kind of the upside inflation risks are still that households, especially in the U.S., still have a lot of cash that resulted from the all the fiscal stimulus. And so, one risk with that is that we have this slowdown in in, in a lot of a lot of parts of the economy, but household demand stays too strong and keeps keeps those inflationary pressures high, even as everything else slows. Um, and, yeah, and, so, and, yeah, and I would add, and that labor markets stay quite tight and thus wage growth quite high for, right. for, for a while. Yeah. And so if that happens, that's going to put the, the Fed in a difficult spot that, yeah, if, if demand stays too high, I, mean, I think we'll, we'll probably get, talk about it a bit, but I mean, we could have a, a, a very sharp growth slowdown or mild recession. But I mean, that that's fine as long as inflation comes down. But if we have the slowdown and inflation stays high, that's when the Fed's going to have to make some really tough decisions. Yeah. So, Anthony, let's turn to that, as you alluded. You know, we did see a negative GDP growth in the U.S. in the first quarter, and we just saw, uh, you know, negative Q2 GDP growth. So all of the talks about the risks of recession um, are starting to feel, you know, more real than theoretical. So, you know, in the U.S., recession calls are really made by the National Bureau of Economic Research, or NBER's Business Cycle Dating Committee, um, you know, these can be delayed by weeks or months. And so really the question for you is, how do we know when we're in a recession? Is the two-quarter GDP, GDP decline a reasonable metric? And so, Anthony, what do you think? Well, I would start off saying, yeah, the GDP, the two-quarter GDP decline probably isn't a, a, a good metric. I mean, I mean, yeah, GDP data can be very quirky, um, and it's subject to very significant revision. Uh, the negative GDP growth we saw in the first quarter is really just driven by trade and inventories to a lesser extent. Most of the other areas of the economy were healthy. The second quarter decline, which we just got the, the data this morning, um, was a little more worrisome because it did show uh, a lot more sectors of the economy uh, declining. Um, but household spending was still positive. Um, but I mean, I think the, the National Bureau of Economic Research, I think they they look at a much broader factors in the GDP alone. So they, they look at personal income, employment, household spending, industrial production, just a, a few factors they look at. And based on those measures, we we did not enter a recession at the start of the year. I mean, most of those um, all of those other measures tended to show the economy was still growing. However, there are some hints that activity began to peak late in the second quarter. We won't know for sure whether it will wind up being an official recession or not, probably until later this year. Yeah, Samantha, as you mentioned, it usually takes the 
the MBER uh, quite some time to determine when that that business cycle peak occurred. Um, but all that said, when we, when we look for the impact on the markets, it's probably not all that important whether we have a very sharp growth slowdown or a mild recession. I think going back to the the last topic, what will be critical to markets is how inflation reacts to that that slowdown in growth or mild recession, because that will determine how much the flex, how much flexibility the Fed has then to 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 address the slowdown through policy. Rupert, do you have anything to add there? Well, I suppose, yeah, I mean, I completely agree with that. I think the you know whether GDP is plus a small amount or negative small amount. Uh, is sort of neither here nor there. Um, it does matter whether we're in a deep recession, whether we get big GD- negative GDP prints. But the difference between small positive and small negative, uh, I think, is 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 neither here nor there. And the question you originally asked was, how do we know if we're in a recession? Well, the most sort of obvious way, really, is are we losing our jobs? Uh, in a recession, people lose their jobs. And that's sort of the simplest way. Now, we can feel inflationary pressures all around us because we're having to pay more on shops. And so it doesn't make us feel great about stuff. Um, But by and large, people are keeping their jobs. They're getting wage increases. Unemployment is really low. Um, and if we if we if we were to enter a recession, uh, then we would know about it because you know well known names around us would be uh, uh, losing staff, friends and colleagues would be losing losing their jobs and that sort of thing. And there really hasn't been any of that any of that of late. But I would stress that it is inevitable that over the next year, the next two years. Um, uh, overall growth in the US, in the UK, in the Eurozone uh, is going to be pretty soft. Um, and that may mean a few, the, the odd quarter of negative growth. But as uh, Anthony, you said, indeed, Sam, you summarized at the very beginning, you know, a, a deep recession is not our, is not, is not what we're expecting. Well, that's certainly good to hear. So then given that context, we're really starting to think about, well, what are the markets telling us and what should we really be doing in our portfolios today? And so, I mean, year to date, we've had quite a ride. We've had the worst equity market decline that we've seen in 60 years. On top of that, uh, the bond markets have also been negative. If you look back to the 20s, both equity and bond markets have seen simultaneously negative returns only 4% of the time. So we've all had quite a ride. And Anthony, do you think the market is priced in a recession? And is this the time to be overweighting or underweighting equities? Well, I mean, I think it's it's reasonable to say that the market has priced in a mild recession. Um, again, going back to the prior comments, it's yeah, a, a sharp slowdown in growth versus a mild recession is probably isn't that significant, but but I think the equity market has priced in some of the downside. But if you look at the performance year to date, I think the overriding driver of the negative returns for the S&P have and, and broader equity markets has been this increase in interest rates. It's been a the discount rate effect, not, not so much fears over the, the outlook for the economy. Um, and as we look at it, as a result of that, we're, we're not really looking to overweight equities right now. It's, it looks like it's been a rational response to this, to this new interest rate environment we're now facing. But but uh, all that said, I mean, I think that if, that if we have a mild recession and inflation falls as a result, that that equities 
should do fine because I think we could see some some interest rates decline offset the the expected yeah, whatever it is ten to twenty percent hit to earnings. Um, the bigger risk is uh, again going back to our earlier comments is that we have this mild recession and inflation is sticky, which would then imply the Fed may have to raise rates a lot more and drive us into that deeper recession or just let, let inflation run. And so it's, yeah, to me, that's clearly the big downside risk for markets right now is that we, we have this economic slowdown and inflation is sticky because that, that would imply a continuation of this environment we've had in the first half of the year. So that's why we've been cautious on, on, on equities, despite this pretty meaningful decline. Rupert, where do you see opportunities in the market today? Um, well, before I get to that, I just, just comment that I completely agree with that on Anthony. And I think there is a big risk that interest rates have to go quite a bit higher. I mean, I think the, you know, the Fed dots, which has the Fed going to, you know, three and a half, something like that, which I think is the view of most economists is a reasonable base case. But if you step back a little bit and say to yourself, well, inflation is at 10%, say, growth. Um, but as I say, I think we think it's going to be, you know, reasonably resilient, not strong, but resilient um, at, say, you know, 1%. And you've got nominal GDP growth at 11%. Why is a Fed funds rate at 3.5% going to slow that? Um, you know, the answer is it probably won't. And that maybe rates need to go back to the sorts of level um, that, uh, you know, people like me um, first saw when we first started investing back in the 90s and the in the noughties, and that maybe the Fed has to go to 5%. I don't think 6%, but, you know, who knows? We, you know, it's difficult to know. And if we got a whiff of that, whether or not it actually happened, then I do think that equities would be particularly vulnerable. So I completely agree with Anthony that I think inflation uh, is absolutely critical. Better news on inflation than equities can quite rally quite hard. Um, less good news, then, then they remain vulnerable. And although, of course, as you said, Samantha, they've fallen quite a chunk this year, that was from all-time highs. Um, and the level of equities is not, is not cheap. We're not looking at S&P 500 at 4,000 and thinking to ourselves, wow, that's cheap. Uh, we got to buy here. Um, so I think the risks for, for equities are two-way. Two I'm getting quite a bit more interested and excited about of a lot of growth fixed income type assets, um, so high yield and the like. Um, I, think I think the corporate sector is in good health. Um, I think in the scenario of a, uh, uh, you know, a prolonged period, couple of years, perhaps, of soft growth, but not a deep recession, I think growth, I think defaults would stay low. And I think that creates some opportunities uh, in the high yield space, um, but also in things like EMD as well. Well, um, and more generally, most credit type type instruments. Uh, I know, Anthony, we've spoken about this recently, and Anthony's a bit more cautious than me. I think you're a bit more cautious generally, Anthony. Um, um, I'd like to drive with you. I imagine you're a very safe driver. <laughs> I'd like to think so, but my wife doesn't. Um, yeah, yeah, I guess my, my, my only concern on credit is probably more of the timing, especially when you look at high yield companies that even in mild recessions, we tend to see those weakest of companies default a lot more. I and mean, we saw that with a relatively mild recession in 1991. Um, yeah. So for me, yeah, the credit yeah, spreads have gotten a lot better. They, they, they give you a little more downside protection than they did, but I wouldn't be surprised to see spreads 
go quite a bit higher than they are now, even in a relatively um, mild recession. And the one thing I perhaps wanted to add, just reflecting what I said about you know, low likelihood of a deep recession is that the one place which might have a deep recession is Europe if Russia turns off the gas. And if Russia turns off the gas, then I think we are looking at an immediate, reasonably sized um, downturn in the, in, the, in the Eurozone economy led by Germany. Um, of course, this down ha- downturn happens once uh, and at some point Europe will get its gas um, and the economy will recover. But that's most definitely uh, a, a, risk, a risk, risk to all of that. And the one thing we also haven't discussed much is China, uh, where China, economically speaking, uh, is at a completely different place to the US and other parts of the world, all of which ha- are too strong and have central banks uh, raising rates to slow growth, to lower inflation. China is in the opposite position um, and uh, having been in lockdown in Shanghai and elsewhere, is stimulating the economy. Uh, and in the, in the same way that uh, weak growth in the US is pretty inevitable, I think decent growth starting today is pretty inevitable in China as well. So I'm going to ask each of you to try to predict the future of it. So we're all sitting here today. Um, and we're talking about inflation, we're talking about geopolitical risk, we're, we're seeing the rise of populism. In a year from now, are we going to still be discussing these topics or are there going to be new topics that, that we're all focused on? Rupert, why don't we go to you first? I think we'll still be talking about most of them. Yes, unfortunately. I think we'll still be talking about inflation. Um, you know, Anthony took us through what's priced into markets and that inflation is falling back by the end of next year to, you know, it's a bit above targets, but not a long way above targets and and so on. Um, And, you know, there will be a question as to um, whether inflation is going to go below targets. And there's certainly a biggest risk, again, as Anthony said, that inflation will be still well above 2%. There are already at the moment, and there will be in a year, a lot of big moving parts. So next year, this time next year, I think used car prices will be falling sharply on a year-on-year basis. Labor markets, anybody's guess. Um, And so I think we will still be talking about uh, inflation, populism. Um, You perhaps can tell me what's going to happen to the former president and presidential election in 2024. Um, I expect it will be quite fruity this time next year on on, on, on that side of things. Um, so I'm, I, I think we'll still be talking about the same thing, but hopefully we won't be talking about the Fed having made a, made a blunder. That's fingers crossed, but base case, um, hopefully, um, you know, the Fed will have got things a bit, you know, more on track than they are at the moment. Anthony, anything to add? Um, I mean, I agree with Rupert. I, mean, I think inflation is still going to be a critical issue we'll be talking about next year. And I think probably what we'll, I think a year from now, we we will hopefully have a better grasp on whether we have really made a regime shift to a more stagflationary environment, or if we're going to move back kind of to the, um, uh, to the environment we, we had up to COVID where, uh, where, yeah, we'd have a period, brief periods of inflation, but then uh, things, things would go back to normal as the economy um, slow it, but I, mean, I think it's a that's it's going to be a critical issue for investors whether, yeah, we're we're kind of returning to something that looks more like the seventies um, rather than the uh, uh, earlier parts of uh, 
the the, the last decade. Um, on the the and the geopolitical unrest, yeah, it's I, th- I think it's going to be an issue, and, and yeah, and sitting here in the U.S., I'm not looking forward to um, the next election, presidential election cycle. It is going to be a mess, and 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 kind of looking out longer term. I mean, overall, I, mean, I would say politics usually don't matter all that for markets, but the the degree of turmoil we're experiencing now in the U.S. and elsewhere does have potential longer term. Um, Don't kid yourself, Anthony. It's worse in the U.S. What do you mean elsewhere? <laughs> um, <laughs> so, so, Samantha, I don't think you should get off scot-free. Um, what, what are your thoughts in a year's time? So I'm optimistic that inflation um, will start to have subsided so that we will not be thinking it um, and won't be the sole focus, which is where we really are all today. And we're watching the central bank action, uh, you know, very closely. Unfortunately, I think the geopolitical unrest is not going to be resolved quickly. And um, I think the rise of populism is just going to continue. It's we're living a daily in the U.S., but we're certainly seeing it in Europe as well. And so I think it's a trend that's here to stay and it's going to be um, raising a question and, and creating some uncertainty in the markets. So, Anthony and Rupert, it's been great to talk to you. I think it's been really optimistic to hear that you think that inflation could decline quickly. We're not in a recession today. And while we may have uh, softening in our growth, that the probability of a deep recession is unlikely. The dramatic shift and downturn in equities has really been driven by the increase in the discount rate, but that we do believe you should stay at your target equity allocation. And the environment is creating some interesting opportunities in growth fixed income, uh, potentially in high yield and EMD. Now, there's always downside risk to all of this in the fact that we could see an economic slowdown, but have persistent inflation uh, that would require more dramatic increases in rates. And as we did talk about the is there is a risk in Europe of you know the energy supply shock um, which which will create ongoing uncertainty. So thank you today for listening to Mercer's mid year 2022 economic and market outlook. We will provide a link to the full 2022 mid year outlook paper in the podcast description, and you can also find it on Mercer Insight Community. If you enjoyed today's episode of Critical Thinking, Critical Issues, please subscribe and leave us a review. If you would like to speak to someone here at Mercer, please reach out to your local Mercer representative or send an email to ctci at mercer.com. Thank you.